Would you please turn your Bibles to the New Testament book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 9 today. It's the first book in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way into your Bibles. When you get to Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone too far, so go to the left and find Matthew in in chapter 9. We're starting a new series today, a new series of sermons looking at the gospel accounts of meals that Jesus ate with people. And the idea of the series was sparked by a book that the Nova College group worked through at their winter retreat. The book was called A Meal with Jesus. And I was inspired by some of the talks about that book and about how they introduced those teachings during the college retreat. And I realized... And I think you do too as you look at your Bible that there's a whole lot of eating that goes on in the scriptures. The scriptures are filled with accounts of feasts and dinner parties and banquets. And Jesus is often found eating with people. And some of those meals had great significance. They did, in symbolism. But I think mostly that the meals were... Because Jesus was hungry, and it's simple as that. It was time to eat. And what we discover is that it's not so much about the meal, but what happens during the meal, and the conversation around the table during the meal. And it's the same thing with us. I mean, food is good. It, it's, it's really good, and some food is better than others, but, but food is really good. But when it really comes down to it, it's who you dine with. That makes all the difference. And so today we're going to take a look in, at this, the beginning of this series with the biblical account of a dinner party at Matthew's house. In Matthew chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 9 today. Let me read this to you. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is God's word for us this morning. What we learn in this meal, in this text, is about the newness of life. That Jesus brings. And we see this at the very end of our text today, where Jesus sums up this conversation at the end with this new patch on an old garment and the new wine in an old wineskin. 
And Jesus is saying here that he's saying, I bring a new life, a, a life that's so new that it can't be contained by the old, in the old categories, and the old forms, that this new life can't be contained. And so today we'll take a look at this idea of what are the lessons from Matthew's dinner party and, and what is this new life like? Well, something happens, definitely, when we experience new life in Jesus Christ. Changes happen. The old life can't contain the new. And we look in verse 9 of our text in, in chapter 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, Matthew's profession was that of a tax collector. Some of your Bibles will translate this as a publican. Now, tax collectors were wealthy, and they were a despised segment of society. And part of the tax collector's money would be handed over or turned into the Roman government. But as long as the proper amount was collected by that tax collector for the authorities, it was known that that tax collector would exact or, 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 or collect an extra amount for his own personal use. Therefore, because of this profession, Matthew would have likely been viewed by his fellow Israelites as a thief and as a traitor and as a transgressor, transgressor of the Torah. We go on in verse 9. Jesus saw this man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth, and he says, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. I think we could say this, that new life, new life begins with a call. Maybe you're, you're one of these people, or maybe you know someone that's on call. Maybe you're a doctor, or you're a first responder, or some, even some IT people, some information technology people are on call. And you might be having a wonderful evening out. I mean, a, a, a wonderful dinner with great food and drink, and the conversation is wonderful. And suddenly, uh, it used to be a pager would go off, right? But uh, a phone call happens, and so that person excuses himself, and, and you see them talking out on the sidewalk of a restaurant or something, and then they come back in, and they'll say, well, I'm sorry, I, I, I have to go. Who are these poor people? Who are these poor people who don't have control over their lives, anyways? Well, they're on call. That's what they are. And if you're called, you can't do whatever you like. You don't have control over your own schedule or time. But if you're not called, then you think you have complete control over your schedule and what you want to do. So what happens when you experience new life? Take a look at your notes and we'll go three, three points here. The first is this. What happens when you experience new life? The first is your priorities change. That's what happens is all of your priorities in your life get rearranged. The Bible says that everyone who follows Christ is on call or is, or is called. There's a, a very popular classic passage of scripture in Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, we love that first part. It even becomes sort of an American cliche. It's sort of the, well, we know that God's, God causes everything to work for good, don't we? And we all say, yes, sure, that's a, that's a good thing. But we forget about the second part, that those who love God are called. 
Now, if we look at Matthew's call experience, it's, it's very unique. We, we see that he's sitting at his desk or his booth or in his office, and Jesus calls him, and then Matthew gets up and walks, he just leaves everything behind, and he follows Jesus. It's very sudden. It's very, very dramatic. But we have to be careful to see Matthew's call experience as not normative for everyone. In fact, if you read through the Bible, you just take the, the Gospel of John, and you could look at different call experiences. In John chapter 3, Jesus calls Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, you know, let's, let's, let's be together. Let's, 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 let's sup together. And Nicodemus just gets up and he, and he goes. It's very similar to Matthew's call experience. But then you go to John chapter 4, and Jesus is encountering this woman at the well. And he's very patient with her. And he's very tender with her. And he's asking questions of her. And they're, they're taking time to talk about it. And then he calls her. It's very different than Matthew's and Nicodemus's experience. Well, then you read more in the Gospel of John and you get to, to John chapter 9. And Jesus encounters a blind man. And, and he heals the blind man. But with that blind man, he's once again very patient. In fact, he's not just patient. He's slow in dealing with him, it seems. And after numerous meetings, then Jesus calls him and draws him, and then he has his call experience. And so there is a central theme in all of this, that you may have believed in Jesus for a long time, you may have gone to Sunday school as a little child, you may have been held as a baby in the nursery, you may have gone to Bible college, you may have gone to missions trips, you may have done all these sorts of things. But you realize in your call experience, when new life comes in, in your calling, you realize that nothing is more important. You realize that your life is not your own. There is a strong realization that your schedule and your time and your resources, with all of that, that Jesus is the most important thing. When you experience new life, number one, your priorities change. The second thing that happens is this. Number two is, I'm going to call an audible. I'm changing this one. So the, uh, calling an audible in football terms is, you know, you get up to, to the line of scrimmage and the quarterback is calling the play. Well, he was in the huddle and he called the play, but then he gets up and he sees the defense and then he says, I'm changing the play. So I'm calling an audible here, okay? So it's, you can write friendships if you want, but really I'm changing that to, let's see, I, I thought about it this morning. Um, <clears throat> um, the audible is this. Why don't you write in there, expand your circle of friends. Expand your circle of friends. Or, <laughs> I'll call another audible, uh, Include others at your dinner table. How, how about that? And, and I'll, I'll expand on that. We'll, we'll get to that point. Okay? So I called the audible on that one. It's not just your friendships change. You could, you could write that and keep it there. But I, I, I think you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about here. This is, let me just preface this. This is perhaps the most important point of today's sermon. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
The Pharisees were concerned. They were pridefully concerned of their reputation in their, what they would consider, relational contamination. Now, contamination or contagion happens through close contact, right? You might be healthy and that person is unhealthy or that object is unhealthy, whatever, it's a handrail, a doorknob, you know, whatever that would be. You might be healthy, but the object or the person is unhealthy. And that, you coming in contact with that person or thing can make you unhealthy. I think you understand that, right? What's interesting, though, is Pharisees believed this contamination not just happened physically, but it happened morally and spiritually, too. And so by Jesus coming in contact with those who didn't live the right way and didn't obey the Mosaic law and those who were cheaters like tax collectors and the spiritually corrupt, they thought that Jesus would also be defiled. And you know what? There's a lot of Pharisee bashing that goes on when we read through the Gospels, right? But I think the Pharisees have a really good point here because we know that friendships shape your character. You are who you hang out with. And mealtimes, you know, they go to this, they're at this dinner party at Matthew's house, and they know that mealtimes are personal. They're relational. They're incredibly intimate affairs with others. And at mealtimes, the barriers come down. Here's the point here, though. It's you become like the people you eat with the most. You become like the people that you eat with the most. Last week, Pastor John shared a a very emotional, and we got to kind of peer into his life about this experience he had when he was a young pastor, and and, um, it it stirred my heart. We talked a little bit about it last week, but it just stirred my heart to be thinking about what shaped me, and how did I grow? How did I change as I was learning to be a pastor and I think about how I grew and matured and learned about pastoral ministry in these 27 years I've been doing this and I've taken classes in seminary and 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 I've I've learned in uh, in seminars and read just tons of books but I'll tell you this one class it made all the difference in my life it was a it was actually a doctorate of ministry class from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. That's, that's in, near Chicago. And they had a seminar here on the West Coast, and so I, 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 I took the class. It was a homiletics class or a preaching class, and I've taken a lot of those classes. But this class had a limited load of people. There were only 18 people in this class. It only lasted Monday through Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It was 12 hours a day. It started at 8 in the morning, and it finished at 8 at night, and they had uh, five professors, one for each day. Now, excuse me for getting a little excited about this class because it's, it was a great class. It was sort of like when uh, wannabe uh, baseball players, they go to baseball fantasy camp, and they get to meet you know, these uh, MLB players and, and get to play baseball with these guys and learn how to pitch and hit and things like that. This is a class. This is a preacher's fantasy camp is, is, is what it was. Um, the first uh, day, you see, you probably don't even know some of these people, but the first day, Jack Hayford from Church on the Way taught from 8 in the morning to 8 at night. 
The second day, Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel taught from 8 in the morning to 8 at night. The third day, Larry Osborne from North Coast Church in Vista taught from 8 to 8. The third day, or the fourth day, Rick Warren from Saddleback Church. The last day was my favorite. It was Chuck Swindoll from the First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton. This was a preacher's fantasy camp, if you don't know. And many of you are thinking, wow, he's weird. But anyways, (laughs) but I'll tell you. Here's what we did. We, we'd meet at 8 in the morning. We'd have breakfast together for about 45 minutes, and we'd just get to know one another. 18 guys in, in this professor, and we'd sit and have breakfast. And then there'd be lecture. And then about 11.30, we'd have lunch for a couple hours, and we'd go to a restaurant and with the professor, and we'd process what we learned that morning. And then we'd have afternoon lecture, and then we'd have dinner together. And we'd sit and talk about life and preaching in the word of God. And we did that for five straight. I don't remember anything about the text. I don't remember anything about the papers I wrote. But I'll tell you what I remember. And even I don't remember much about the lectures. Not much. But I'll never forget those meal times Where we sat. And we talked about. What the lecture was about. And we processed all the things. That we were going through in our own ministries with one of the greats of what we do. You will become like the people that you eat with the most. And, and the Pharisees weren't crazy. They, in fact, from the, from the Old Testament, if you read in the Old Testament dietary laws, and if you're reading through the Bible with me, and you're, we're, we're getting to that place, right? And it's, it's like, uh, eat this, but don't eat that. And, and eat this, but don't eat it with this thing. And and. Don't eat with these people, but you can eat with these people, right? And it's, it's just like, it's over. And you think, oh, how do I get through this, right? But there was a point to that. You could not just sit down and eat a meal with a pagan, with an unbeliever. And therefore, pagans did not infect. There was no contagion from the Jewish people to the pagans. The Jewish people kept their beliefs intact because of that, because they knew mealtimes were so important. And for centuries it worked, of course. But now Jesus comes on the scene and he, he's changing things. And, and that's why this is a very important point. In this portion of scripture, Jesus is saying, I'm turning things upside down. I'm, this is a pivot point in the kingdom of God right here. And Jesus comes in, he says, I've got something new. And in, in so verse 12 of, of our text, it says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And it seems logical, and we say, Of course, that's true. But it was revolutionary to them at that time. And, and well, let's just say we're all sick. We all have that sickness, don't we? It's fears, it's depression, it's anxieties, it's sin. It's, it's, it's in us. We all need help. And as a doctor, you treat sick people, but you take great measures to not get contaminated by the sickness, don't you? Let me just stop there in our text, and let's go back one chapter to chapter 8. And as we read through the Bible, that's what we should do, right? Is we should look at it with a wider view and, and, and take a look at a wider view. Let me just go to the story of Matthew chapter 8 in verse 2. And and Jesus is beginning to say, there's a change here. I'm turning this whole idea upside down. There's a man with leprosy in chapter 
8, verse 2, who came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, the leper knew that all Jesus needed to do was to be willing. And lepers at that time were, they were unclean. They were, they were diseased. And they even thought lepers were morally corrupt. Not just a physical disease, but they thought they were morally corrupt. The leper says, Jesus, all you need to do is be willing. And look what Jesus does. It's revolutionary. Verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now we all know that Jesus didn't need to touch the leper, but he does. So why does he do this? In this, Jesus is saying that for centuries you understood that the unclean infected the clean. And Jesus is saying, this is something new. I'm making, this is a new thing right now. Jesus says, I am holy, he says, and your sin does not affect me. He says, in fact, my holiness will overcome your unholiness. My perfection will overcome your imperfection. My righteousness will overcome your unrighteousness. On the spot, it's not because of your effort and all the things that you do and rules and things like that that makes you clean. It's on the spot. I'm here, and it's my holiness that's going to make you holy. And he says to us, he calls us and says, you do the same thing. Through your love and your expansion of your circle of friends, that you're going to do the same thing. Back to our text in, in Matthew chapter 9, in, in verse 13. He says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, the mark of a new life, we're talking about new life here, is not sacrifice, Jesus says. He's saying it's not the sacrificial system of doing the right thing, of following all the rules, of of giving the right amount of offering, of making sure you're you're at church for attendance and all the other meetings you need to go through. And it's, it's not about your physical appearance and what you look like. That's not what makes you new. The mark of new life, Jesus says here, is mercy. And mercy is love and compassion and service to those who are not like you. That is drawing close to people who are not like you. It's opening up your circle of friends who are not like you and opening up your relationships to people and contacts who are not like you, and maybe even inviting them over to have a meal with you. Now, once again, we're looking at this. Our text is chapter 9. We looked at chapter 8 and saw something, and let's look at chapter 10, and we'll see something new too. A sign that Jesus is exploding all the rules and regulations, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 7 and 8. Jesus has his 12 apostles the disciples and he's sending them out now to do ministry for the kingdom of god and in verse 7 it says go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near and then he says revolutionary stuff he says heal the sick draw close to them raise the dead he says cure those with leprosy get close to them cast out demons and he says this Give as freely as you have received. As freely as you have received this, this, this new life, you give it now. And so 
what we see in this new life is the first thing is your priorities will change when you experience new life. The second thing is that your friendships will change, that you're to draw close and, and to touch and involve your lives with other people who are not like you. That you are to, he says to his disciples, stay at their houses, be, be close to them, hang out with them, have dinner with them, feed the hungry, do the laundry for the poor people, build houses for people who don't have houses, and, and, and be, be fathers and mothers to the fatherless. Do these things. He's changing everything. It's what new life brings. The third is this. What happens when you experience new life? Will your priorities change? Your circle of friends change? And the third is your, your capacity changes. It's, it's uh, your, capacity, your capacity to do ministry changes. So, where do you get the power and the capacity, capacity to reach out and befriend people that you really, um, they're not in your circle of friends currently? Where do you get the capacity to live this new life? Well, take a look at this. uh, Matthew chapter 9 in our text, verses 9. I'm sorry, verse 14. And then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Here Jesus establishes this word picture and fills it out more and calls himself the bridegroom and he, he implies that the, that the church is the, is the bride. And Jesus doesn't want to just have this relationship with people like a king in the subjects or like a boss in his employees or like a master in slaves. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you that's so prominent and so intimate that it's like a marriage partnership. In a healthy marriage, there's joy. There's great joy when, when, when you're together. And there's strength when you're, when you're working together. And, and you could do more. There's a greater capacity and power when you're working together in a healthy marriage relationship. But there will be a time, Jesus says, that the bridegroom will be taken. And he's probably referring to Isaiah chapter 53, where... Jesus is described in Isaiah 53 in, in verse 5. He says, he was pierced for our, for our rebellion and he was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we would be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray and we have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and he was treated harshly Yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb that was led to slaughter. And he didn't open his mouth. He was unjustly condemned. And he was led away. And this, this here is the answer to the mystery of how can we be instantaneously righteous and without sin? The Pharisees didn't understand that. They thought that you'd have to do all these things in order to achieve righteousness. But Jesus says no. So the mystery is how can we have that? Because our sin was imputed or our sin was laid on him. And he took our diseases and 
By his stripes we are healed. He became the executed one. He became the leper. He became the cursed one. He became the one that was let out. He became the one that was beaten and driven out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that changes everything. It, 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 it absolutely changed everything. And, and so when Jesus brings this, this, this idea that it's not the healthy who need a, it's not the sick, just the sick who need a doctor. It, it's so amazing to look at this revolutionary statement that Jesus makes. New life is not based on our efforts. It's not based on our righteousness or our works. Or our intelligence. But because of the new life in Jesus Christ, when that happens, number one, our priorities change. Number two, our circle of contacts, our friendships, they expand. And number three, our capacity changes because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'll just close with this. It's very simple. We're all in process, aren't we? We're all in this, boy, I wish, I, I wish it could all happen to me so fast. We're all in process. And see, that's why I love in our text today, verse 13. In, in our text today, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I, I love that. He says, go and learn what this means. It, it's, remember, Christianity is for thinkers. It's not just sort of this mindless, mindless babbling sort of, wow, I just got struck and now I'm a Christian and everything's going to be better from now on. Christianity is for thinkers and Jesus says, go and learn what this means. So we need to be patient. We need to pause often to give God time to speak into our lives, to lean into him. Don't lean away from him. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Let's all stand for the benediction. You see, at at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So go forth now as a Christ follower in new life. Remember God's presence is with you. And draw strength from knowing that the one who calls you and sends you also sustains you. In the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.